Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about infertility. Today we're going to be talking about the long-term impacts on children conceived by IVF. Although this is on the minds of many patients and professionals, this topic has in some ways become the third rail of infertility medicine. And for good reason, because we don't want to scare patients and we don't have a lot of data and, and much of what we have shows very little impact. So why ruffle the waters? I think it's crucial to look at what we know and what we don't know and what we can do to improve infertility treatment to reduce the risks, both for the short-term outcomes as well as the long-term when these kids reach middle or older age. I am so happy to be talking with Dr. Paolo Rinaldo. He is a professor of gynecology and obstetrics, as well as a reproductive endocrinologist at the University of California in San Francisco. He is an MD, PhD, and his research is on the long-term health of kids who were conceived via IVF. So he brings to the table both uh, a research experience as well as a practical experience of a, a reproductive endocrinologist working with patients day to day. Welcome to Creating a Family, Dr. Renato. Thank you, Dawn. I'm excited to be here. All right. You know, um, I, as, as simplistic as this sounds, I, I think it is helpful to begin talking about, if we're going to be doing a comparing and contrasting, I think it helps to remind everyone what is the environment, if, if a child is uh, conceived naturally without IVF, what is the environment of that early egg, sperm, embryo, uh, what is it like in natural conception? And then we'll, we'll contrast it to changes uh, that may or may not be significant when we introduce uh, in vitro fertilization. This is a great question. And uh, to start, the in vivo environment uh, is really um, incredible. Um, eggs and sperm meet at the end of the fallopian tubes, and in a journey that lasts approximately five days, the embryo grows and moves to the uterus, well, where it will implant approximately six, seven days after fertilization. Uh, okay. the, the environment is um, diverse throughout the fallopian tubes. For example, at the end of the fallopian tubes, there are different amount of glucose or, or, or other amino acids that change throughout the journey. So really, throughout the journey, from the end of the fallopian tubes to the uterus, there's a different environment where different amount of nutrients and cytokines and growth factors are present. And, and let's talk just briefly um, uh, about the, the changes in the microbiome um, between what, what might be present at the, the end of the fallopian tubes that is right near the ovaries versus the microbiome that might be present uh, at the end of the fallopian tubes as they uh, approach the uterus. Uh, that's another fascinating area. I know it's not your area of research, but it's another fascinating area of research that's being done. Right. The, the old question of the microbiome is something that is evolving rapidly and we're learning every day something new. Uh, regarding the microbiome on the fallopian tubes, we really don't know much in terms of what is there and how that could affect fertility. Um, I, I think potentially even the, the microbiome in the intestine itself could play a role during early development, but I think we do not have data yet to truly understand how much that affects the fertilization process. Yeah, one can understand that it might be hard to test the microbiome, in, especially in the fallopian tubes. 
um, given their location and fragility. Um, all right. So we know that IVF alters the environment of an embryo compared to natural conception. That makes sense, obviously. But I mean, the, the part that's absolutely fascinating to me is do these changes impact, have an impact on the future child? Now, let's talk briefly about, again, because I think that most of us know a, a fair amount about the IVF process. But can you tell us, let's, let's talk briefly about the IVF process in specific as to how it differs from the embryo standpoint uh, uh, than, than natural conception. Correct. So um, there are multiple differences in which um, th that exist in the in vitro condition compared to an in vivo condition. Number one, we use culture media that are, they have different compositions. Um, there are actually probably five to 10 different providers of culture media and uh, the products in the culture media are different, meaning there are different amount of glucose, of amino acids. And um, this composition is 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 thought to play a role in development. But the type of nutrients present in the media is only one of the factors. The other factor is the presence of oxygen concentration where the amber grows. And to give you an example, Don, normally the air we breathe contains 20% of oxygen and some amber culture condition contained at 20%. But really, in, uh, in the oxygen concentration, the fallopian tubes is 5% of oxygen, much lower. And so the embryo can be cultured in different oxygen concentration. New evidence suggests that lower oxygen, oxygen concentration is more beneficial. So this is another factor in addition to the culture condition. Number three, there's even new evidence suggesting that the fallopian tubes are very soft, while a Petri dish where we culture embryos can be hard, uh, and uh, the same hardness can have an effect of embryo development. So all these factors that are different from in vivo condition can play a role in development. What about things such as light? Um, I, I, the, because I know that depending on the lab, sometimes embryos during development are exposed to light. Some, some labs do not do that, I realize. But has uh, there been any thoughts that the exposure to light could also have an impact? Great question, and it is correct. Yes, exposure to light can affect embryo development or can affect gene expression of the embryos. Um, the, the early embryo is really um, a, um, a composition of different stem cells that are very sensitive to the environment. And indeed, um, all these different factors, nutrients, light, uh, softness of the environment can really affect how the embryo develops. And for this reason, the embryologists are very careful to culture embryo in the best condition possible and to minimize any uh, exposure. Light exposure is definitely a big one. We're trying to minimize as much as possible. Okay, excellent. And the other thing that I what would also occur to me is temperature. Now I realize that the petri dishes that are the embryos are growing in are maintained at a a steady temperature, but the female body isn't at a steady temperature. So, any thoughts that that temperature itself, uh, just the tiny fluctuations in temperature, might have an impact. Very good point. The temperature itself can have a, play an important role. We try, we try to keep embryos at approximately 37 degrees, uh, but there is evidence that 
potentially even uh, in vivo, the temperature could be slightly different in different parts of uh, the ovarian follicle, for example, it's thought to be a little bit of a lower temperature compared to 37 degrees. So uh, embryologists are extremely careful to control the temperature and we try to minimize fluctuation because fluctuation and changes in all of this environment can affect negatively the embryo development. Not necessarily a, uh, the absolute different, but the variation over time can affect the embryo's growth. So that is correct. You know, there's been a obviously a fair, a, a, a large amount of research in the live birth rate, uh, and we have seen it. In, based on this research, we have seen changes, and we have seen that increasing. So we know that uh, IVF uh, in infertility treatment, but specifically IVF, is uh, we that the children are being born. They say, and gosh, how many? I, uh, you know, well over five million now. Uh, what is the latest uh, on the uh, ESHRA as far as reporting what the number is? I, I should have looked it up. Yes. Um, so um, right now... Six million? Eight well, million, we actually think like it's eight million and probably eight, 10 yeah. million. Why this huge variety? Because data from China and India are currently not reported and we're not sure about the number, but it is felt that probably uh, we're close to 10 million. Uh, the ICMART is an international organization that tries to... Uh, get a sense of the number of children. I was talking recently to some of the um, uh, leaders and they were suggesting that we might be close to the 10 million mark. Oh, wow. That's absolutely. Uh, so we know we have 10 million human beings on this earth that would not be here without the miraculous advances in reproductive medicine that has resulted in, in IVF as we know it today. Now, what do we know from the research uh, on the impact that we can see on the children at a very young age, which is where we're studying them, you know, birth to one year or something like that. Is there any evidence that children born after uh, in vitro fertilization um, look different, have any different issues than a child born through natural in that first year of life? I'm not talking long term now. Yes. So um, first of all, I, I would like to emphasize that the greatest majority of children are very healthy. And, uh, uh, and that is highly reassuring. Obviously, as a researcher, scientist, and academician, we try to really look into any potential problems. Uh, and uh, when doing that, we do see that there are potentially some effects. What are these? Um, with IVF, there is an increased incidence of children being born of low birth weight or very low, or low birth weight, even at term. Okay, so we're not talking about multiple pregnancy because multiple pregnancies are clearly associated with preterm birth. But even if you have a single baby, that single baby has a higher chance to be born a little bit earlier or very much earlier. And I think that is um, one of the main factors. Now, having a lower birth weight can be associated with problem later on in life. And, and therefore, this is something that scientists and researchers are very careful about monitoring over time. The second, yeah. yes, go ahead. The second findings, um, and that is very unclear why that would be. There seemed to be an increase in malformation in children conceived by IVF. If the incidence in the general population is three to four percent of children with malformation after in vivo conception, after IVF, the incidence seems to be four to five percent, so twenty to thirty percent relative increase. 
Now, we do not know if that is secondary to infertility or the yeah. self. We don't, are not even sure if the data are absolutely correct. However, several data seem to suggest that there is a, an increased incidence of malformation in children conceived by ART or assisted reproductive technologies. Are all the birth defects of a similar sort, so that would lead you to believe that there is a, a common cause? Are, are they across the board, just in different organs or different, different presentations? They are across the board, and therefore we cannot really make a link, and we cannot really understand if really why that would be. Uh, many uh, investigators believe that people who have problems to conceive in fertile couples are different from fertile couples, and they attribute this increase to the infertility. There are some who say, well, maybe the culture condition could play a role, but really we do know that. And um, that is still a very active area of investigation. Right, because I mean, the, 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 the parents, I mean, you've got two possible, well, probably more than two, two possible causes to look at, or at least two. One would be the different type of conception. And so that, that the differences we would have with IVF versus natural conception could could be causing the, the the slight increases, or it's not really a slight increase, but overall the risk is still not high, but it's a significant increase. Um, but it could also be the parents, uh, either genetically or, or some other way that we don't know, or maybe even epigenetically, that, that could be a, a less... And we also know that infertility patients tend to be older. So it's how do we tease that out, or do we yet, yes. without more research? What you said is exactly correct. All these factors can play a role. And, you know, when we find some data, for example, these uh, supposed increase in malformation, we always have to ask ourselves, why is that? But the confounding factors, the older age, the, being affected by infertility probably play an important role in in the in um, uh, the finding that we have. So you've talked about the increased risk of low birth rate at term, and you've talked about an increased risk of birth defects. So are there any other uh, um, short term impacts that we're seeing in children born via IVF? Yes, there is evidence in immediately uh, that there can be um, an increased use of cesarean section. Uh, there is evidence that you can have a tiny bit more bleeding at the time of delivery. Um, but overall, uh, I would say that uh, the possible complications are very well managed and um, overall are reassuring. At, at this point, we do not think that an IVF pregnancy is a high-risk pregnancy, so it can be managed in a normal fashion, um, unless obviously it's a multiple pregnancy, and when you have more than one baby, two, and of course three, then of course measure to uh, take care of multiple pregnancies needs to be taken into consideration. Right, so we're, yeah, we're going to be real clear here that we're not talking about multiple pregnancies. Yes, yes, exactly yeah. correct. Okay. Let me pause here and remind everyone that you are listening to Creating a Family. We're talking about the long-term health impact of IVF on the children conceived via that form of infertility treatment. 
This show is brought to you by Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring wants you to know about Ferticom. It is an app for Apple and Android phones developed by reproductive psychologist Dr. Ali Domar and Dr. Liz Grill. And it was designed to help women address the many emotional issues that, that arise when you are struggling to conceive. They use uh, well-known cognitive, behavioral, and relaxation techniques. It is a free app now uh, due to the support of Faring, uh, and we are very thankful for that because the app is wonderful. You can download it at your uh, at any of the app stores uh, or the Google Play or wherever, or you could just Google this, FertacomApp.com, and that will take you to the website where they are located, and you can download it there as well, or they will direct you to the um, one of the uh, app stores, our uh, Google Play. So thank you, Faring, for uh, supporting us, and, and thank you for supporting the Ferticom app. All right, so we have talked about the short-term impacts. Uh, you've talked about the low birth rate at term. We've talked about the increased birth defects, increase in C-sections, and, and, and uh, uh, post-birth complications such as bleeding and, and things like that, all of which uh, seem to be handled well uh, through our, the, our modern medical system. All right, so now I want to start talking about the area that's a little less known, and that is what the long-term impacts are. And one of the very frustrating things for me um, as someone who likes to dig into the research is one of the missions of, of, of our organization, Creating a Family, is to be the bridge between the research community and the uh, patient and the uh, nurse community. And so we dig a lot into the research. And there, there, has, there doesn't seem to be a lot of research in this area, and obviously partly it's because the children doing longitudinal research, longitudinal research would be, you know, maybe ongoing, I'm not sure, but the children are not, uh, you know, the oldest, what the oldest one is, you know, and, and she's a population of one, Louise Brown. So anyway, why is there, uh, or is this just my perception that there isn't a, a robust, robust research environment? Uh, I know you're doing research in this area, but why isn't, why isn't this an area that is that everyone is researching since we are all so vested in, in wanting to make certain that uh, this procedure is good for the long term for children? Great question, Don. And I think um, it's a very important one. Um, I think actually research is occurring as we speak, and there is a vast interest in the research community about the topic. However, is a complex research to perform because following children require a lot of resources, performing epidemiological studies, and following over time. And it's very challenging to um, follow large population, for example, conceived by IVF, or conceived simply by the use of ovulation induction and not IVF, or naturally conceived, and then to see the incidence of diseases. So these studies are costly and difficult, but I think are really important to do because we owe it to our patients to try to provide as many information as possible about the health of children. Um, 
So I think studies are occurring. For example, at UCSF, we're conducting a study called DESCAR study, where we're following children conceived through IVF. Patients who come to our clinic are followed over time. We also have a retrospective harm. Children conceived in the past are, are going to be followed. They were really looking into a possibility of a diseases like uh, glucose intolerance or high blood pressure. However, I would say one of the limitations of all of these studies is that if there is an effect of this technology on children's health, this will be discovered much later on because glucose intolerance or hypertension are disease of middle age and not of young children. So uh, w these are long-term studies that require to be monitored and continue for a long time. But I think what you said is correct. We do need to do these studies, absolutely. It did for a while there. It seemed like a lot of the uh, studies were being done in Europe, and I, I couldn't help but wonder if that's because Europe has uh, registries where children are registered if they are conceived through IVF, um, whereas we don't have that in the U.S. Is that – are you still seeing a lot of studies come out of Europe for that reason? You're exactly correct. Uh, in fact, the, the majority of study came from Belgium. Um, right now, we're also uh, working with a group from Harvard and Denmark and Sweden to follow uh, the large cohort of, of children um, in those countries because they have an excellent medical record. And therefore, we're going to try to tease out, again, if the method of conception play a role in affecting their health. But I think the availability of excellent medical record in those countries makes the project feasible uh, or easier to perform than here in the U.S. Have there been any studies, before we dig more deeply into what the studies to date have found, but have there been any studies that compare children um, born through uh, oral medications, uh, Clomid, Letrozole, something like that, Clomiphene citrate, um, uh, um, versus IVF? It seems like that would be an interesting study because then you would have still a potential infertile population that would be giving birth, and you would also be having medication, but, but the conception itself would be inside the body. Very good point. Uh, and, and surprisingly, we do not have such a study published yet. Uh, the NIH is actually is funding uh, some of the studies and asking uh, investigators to work on it. And here at UCSF, we're exactly trying to do that. But there are no published study comparing ovulation induction versus IVF with large population um, of, of patients. Um, one of the main issues really that there are small studies and uh, relatively young children, and therefore, um, the true effect might not be apparent for a while. Yeah. Like you say, it's complex because uh, it, it has to be, by, by the nature of what you're looking for, it has to be studies over time. Uh, yeah, exactly. All right. It, it, um, some of the impetus for, I guess, maybe the initial even thinking that to, to look into this back in the very beginning days of IVF. Uh, came from a uh, physician and epidemi epidemiologist uh, by the name of David Parker. And uh, he was doing some studies that were had nothing to do with IVF, but were showing that malnutrition either right before or immediately after, I mean, conception, um, not necessarily going through the entire pregnancy, although I think he studied that as well, had significant impact on the long-term 
health of the children conceived. Can you tell us a little bit about his studies? How, what was he? What population was he studying, and what did he find? Excellent question. Uh, so um, David Barker in, is a scientist uh, from the United from United Kingdom. And he made a very interesting observation approximately in the 1980s. He observed that um, there was a very high incidence of uh, cardiovascular disease, myocardial infarction, and stroke in population in certain area of England where um, 60, 70, 80 years before there was a very high incidence of low birth weight. So he made the link between low birth weight and long-term problem. And he argued that low birth weight was an, as a marker of stress in utero. So pregnancy that were not very healthy because of their malnutrition uh, and resulting low birth weight resulted in children that, that when they grew up were predisposed to this condition. This is called now the developmental origin of health and disease or the Barker hypothesis. Right now, it is fairly accepted that indeed what happens in utero has important health consequences for the rest of, of life. So being born of lower birth weight, everything being equal. So for example, if, if a, two brothers, one is born weighing six pounds and the other eight pounds, and the brother weighing six pounds will be predisposed to the diabetes hypertension even if the postnatal life is very healthy. Okay, really because during uterine growth was exposed to suboptimal environment. So this is the overarching intellectual uh, framework that explain why it's so important to have a healthy pregnancy. Yeah, and that, and, and he also did some research that said that that even if the the malnutrition lasted for only a short period of time. And, and, and was taken care of and, and was no longer, uh, mal the woman was no longer malnourished. Those children were still at a higher risk. I, I don't remember from the result of having read this, whether it was for risk of, of low term, uh, low birth rate at term or for long term, uh, chronic health conditions. Yes. So the concept is that a low birth weight is a marker of stress in utero. And this in itself has indicated that the embryo and fetus was exposed to suboptimal condition and therefore uh, is predisposed to problem later on in life. Um, the thought is also that if to that unhealthy environment in utero, you add an unhealthy postnatal life, the consequences will be even worse. So really having a very healthy pregnancy, I think is one of the critical factor to optimize health for the child in the future. And, and, and so certainly a healthy pregnancy we're aware of and we want to, but now we want to talk about even pre-pregnancy health or pre-pregnancy environment. And that is the, uh, the, uh, in the case of IVF, the maturation of the embryo up until the day, what, five or six. Um, so, all right. So what, what type of research is going on and what is the, has, what has been found, uh, as not short term, but as long a term as you can get given the age of the children? Uh, and, and I know a lot of these studies are in animals, so that allows us to go further, uh, obviously, because we can go through, uh, through the life cycles. So, uh, of, uh, so what is the research finding 
uh, as far as impacts from in vitro uh, maturation of the embryo before uh, before transfer into the into the woman. Yes, um, and this is a very good question. So again, uh, I think we lack human studies to really prove that there is a, an effect. And I would like to emphasize the fact that again, we believe that IVF children are healthy. Um, very importantly, but research needs to be done about the topic. And the, the data that are currently available derive from animal studies. What I think is very interesting that the original data came from some uh, researcher in the late 90s, early 2000, where they found that simply culturing a mouse embryo for two days was, uh, was associated with this embryo growing into a fetus in an adult that had some slightly um, decreased memorization of spatial information and decreased anxiety. These were the original studies I was made aware when I was a student that really stuck to me because I was like, okay, if we culture an embryo for a few days, a mouse embryo, and there could be some effect in terms of behavior, what about humans? I'm going to spend my life trying to help people having children. Is it possible that other effect occurs? And that is why, personally, I decided to do more study and to learn more about the health of the culture condition. Now, um, what do the studies say? Um, so the majority of studies are done in mice, and overall, I would say there are two series of, of findings. Number one, seems like it is possible that um, mice that were culturing in vitro might have a predisposition to glucose intolerance that is not diabetes, but a little bit less ability to handle glucose. Number two, some studies done by some other groups in Switzerland seem to suggest that these mice conceived in vitro are predisposed to a higher blood pressure. So these are the two main findings that I think are available today. And these have been mice studies, correct? Absolutely. So the point is that obviously there is a huge species difference mm -hmm. and uh, we need to be very careful to make any translation to human studies. And these were mice that uh, went through IVF, where the yes. embryo were, okay, yes. so they were. These and, mice were conceived through IVF, and then immediately after IVF were transferred to recipient, and they're followed over time with the exact idea to ask, is it possible that these mice culture in vitro uh, have problems when they grow up later on in life, and looking specifically for common condition like diabetes and hypertension? And, and they are finding an increased risk in middle age for these mice for um, either diabetes or glucose intolerance, as well yes. as, as blood pressure. Um, at one point, there was a study uh, in humans, I believe, uh, that showed that children conceived uh, through IVF had a higher weight uh, by age than children conceived naturally. Are you familiar with that? I'm not sure that I'm remembering it correctly. I think there are several studies that trying to analyze birth weight exactly because Dr. Barker was using weight as a marker of stress in utero. Now, um, overall, the data seems to suggest lower birth weight, not higher in general. Um, if at all, um, but depends on the culture condition used. For example, 
Animal study clearly show that different culture media can greatly affect the growth pattern of the embryo based on the composition of the media used. So um, I would say that the majority of uh, human studies seems to suggest that there is a tendency to, towards lower birth rate, birth weight, not rate, mm -hmm. lower birth weight rather than increased. Um, However, there are some conditions that are associated possibly with IVF that are associated with higher birth weight, like the Prader-Willing or Angelman syndrome or Backwood-Wiedemann syndrome. These are epigenetic disorder that seem to be having a slightly higher incidence in children conceived to via IVF. Okay, I, I, the study I was trying to uh, pull to mind was on older children, not birth rate. And I think it was tying children's glucose, that uh, there was a glucose intolerance. And, and so, I, but if, if you're not familiar with it, then I'm saying this study is, <laughs> it's probably not been, uh, it's not been supported or found to, because this was a number of years ago. Uh, there, are, there are two Belgian studies where they basically, I mean, probably some of the best studies were done in Belgium and published uh, approximately 10 years ago. And they followed children conceived by IVF to children conceived by infertile couple after one year of trying. So that studies were particularly beautiful because the control group was infertile patient conceived spontaneously. In those you know, studies, that is, yeah, so that, great study, absolutely. And the, so the number was two hundred thirty children per group. So they were not large studies. The mean age was approximately twelve years old. So relatively young, what they found was like, from a behavioral point of view, there was no difference in children, but the children had a slightly increase of peripheral body fat and slightly higher glucose level, slightly higher blood pressure that was not clinically significant, meaning the blood pressure was only slightly elevated, it was statistically different, but not clinically important. The, the important of those studies are that, again, even these small differences that were not clinically relevant um, suggest that, you know, children do not normally have hypertension or do not have diabetes. The question would be when they grow up 20, 30 years later, what will be the factor? And that's why, as you were mentioning before, it would be very important to follow children and really track their health how they grow up. And, 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 and again, the, the, one of the purposes for doing this is not to frighten parents because no one is going through IVF if they have other choices. They're going through IVF because it is their only choice. So it, the, the point is not to frighten parents. The point is to find out if there are things that, that we can do different in IVF that would prevent this, um, more likely mimic a natural conception. This is exactly correct. We absolutely do not want to frighten by any means. We just, like in any field of medicine, we want to truly understand you know the health we want to want to try to to learn as much as possible about the health of the procedure to make think even better i do think that this animal study um that however point to the to the fact that the pre-implantation period is a time of profound changes and high sensitivity to the environment and therefore exactly doing the procedure when is needed is absolutely critical and um starting from this point i i what I've learned from my own study is that I would suggest the following, to do only the minimal procedure that are needed, not to do extra procedure and it, just because we can do them. So for example, um, 
Right now, you can do a biopsy of an embryo to see if it is chromosomally normal or not. And uh, there are some indication for the condition, some that are less um, um, strongly um, suggested. I would not perform the procedure if not absolutely suggested by the doctor, because by performing more procedure, we could further stress the embryo. And we do not know if that additional procedure might be linked later on to problems. What would you, so you're, you're talking about pre-implantation genetic testing, either diagnosis or screening. And, uh, and, and we'll be real clear that if your doctor is recommending it, you need to be relying on your medical professional who is seeing you and knows your specific situation. But in general, so we're only talking in generalities, but in general, um, the biopsying of a embryo, what you're saying is it is one more change, one more potential impact um, yes. from an embryo, on an embryo. Well, I would say that anything, for example, you can fertilize an embryo simply by IVF or by ICSI. Uh, now, um, in certain uh, countries, and definitely the U.S., we probably perform ICSI more frequently than we need to. Um, there is evidence from animal work that if you do an ICSI to an embryo, if you culture for a longer time, if you do a biopsy, if you do a multiple procedure together, that can affect the embryo more than if you do less procedure. So I would say unless it's clinically indicated, I would try to minimize the intervention to the embryo simply because it's a, uh, it's a, more, it's a safer approach and um, we want to really try to uh, avoid that the additional procedure might further impact the health and the growth of the embryo. So you're saying basically less is more. Yes. But, well, but then we, we also, uh, has there been evidence to say that uh, ICSI, uh, intercytoplasmic sperm injection, that's the, when a individual sperm is manually inserted by the embryologist into the egg. So the, the fertilization is, is, is being caused by the, by the embryologist. The, um, but is there evidence to suggest that both ICSI and, and uh, pre-implantation genetic testing is, results in an uh, increased number of, of births? So, I mean, it, it, then you're kind of having to say, well, there's a potential of long-term health. But on the other hand, my goal right now is to have a healthy baby. So how do you, how do you weigh those yeah. two? So uh, when you need to perform those procedures, you absolutely need to perform the procedure. I completely agree with you. The question is, uh, if you have a perfectly normal semen analysis, there is evidence that ICSI does not increase the pregnancy rate. So I do think that when there is an absolutely healthy, normal semen analysis, um, we don't need to do ICSI on all patients. Um, that's when the physician and the patient have a choice. If the semen analysis is not normal, absolutely you need to do it. There's no question about that. And absolutely is a medically indicated procedure. The question is, do we need to do ICSI all the time and, and always? And I think that's where several basic scientists argue that we should be careful because, again, if... The, we can achieve fertilization just by adding the sperm to the egg, the standard in vitro fertilization that will reach equal success than uh, having to perform ICSI in that particular patient. So what I'm saying is only when not needed, 
procedure should not be done. When it's needed, absolutely, right. Right. there's no question that need to be done, and that is absolutely very important. What about the move now towards, uh, you've mentioned many times, a number of times, the issue of the culture, which is absolutely fascinating um, because that is the obviously the lifeblood, literally probably, for the, um, for the embryo as it's growing in those days. There has certainly been a significant shift to uh, culturing uh, embryos for five days to the blastocyst stage before we are transferring them, whereas in the past, uh, more embryos were transferred at the three-day stage. But waiting those extra two days does mean that the embryo is exposed to the culture for, uh, you know, from its life standpoint, a significantly, two days is significant when you're only talking a four-day or five-day-old embryo. So how is that? How do you, how do you weigh that? Yes. Versus, uh, is that also something that's being researched? Very good question. So the length of culture as some, um, some clinical, uh, scenarios. I mean, culturing an embryo for longer time, if you have enough embryo to do so, can be beneficial because you can select the embryo and therefore you can transfer a single embryo, for example, avoiding multiple pregnancies. So that's clearly great advantages. However, for the patient who only has one or two embryos, culturing for five days might not necessarily be advantageous because the embryo could potentially not grow in culture for the whole time for five days and potentially could survive more in the maternal environment rather than in in vitro condition. Now, the question from animal studies about if the length of culture has long-term effect isn't clear. Uh, one uh, very capable investigator in England, Dr. Tom Fleming, has been trying, has been doing some experiment comparing effect in animals, in mice, of embryoculture versus three to five days. And to my recollection, although the study were not published yet um, to, in a conference, in a personal communication, there did not seem to be major problems if you culture an embryo for three to five days. However, the type of media can clearly make a big difference. Uh, in some regional studies we were performing, we culture embryo with media that were suboptimal, with a little bit more glucose than needed, little less amino acids, and we clearly saw that the mice culture under those conditions had worst effect when they grew up that mice culture in optimal condition. That's where I, I've learned to say that the culture environment might play a role because a more suboptimal condition clearly might have a worst effect. But all clinics, at least in the United States, are using media that has, it's commercial media that there's, you said there were six different types. I didn't realize there were that many, but so as long as your clinic is using and they would be. All clinics are using the, the standard media. You don't have to worry that your clinic is using a... Correct. Um, you know. Correct. This, the media are standardized, and there are different type of media, and they're all... Um, you know, optimized. Um, obviously, we're still learning. Uh, the, the truth is that we still have to learn why medium number one versus medium number two is is done in that particular fashion and what will this mean for the child when the child grow up. Yeah. We lack those data. And that's where animal studies are important because, again, they could give us some suggestion 
about how different nutritions present in the culture media might affect the health of the individual. That's really where we lack data. We do not have data. And that's where I think is very important to study so that we can provide to patients proper information and we can make healthier children. And, you know, and, and uh, there was another fascinating study that was looking at one of the things that's added into the commercial media that, that uh, infertility clinics use is a growth factor, which makes good sense in, in the, uh, because we want embryos to get a, a good start because we want them to grow, to divide, uh, and be as healthy as possible for the transfer. But uh, there was some concern that, again, that's a change, whether it's a whether it's harmful, we don't know, but that is a change. Uh, so how does media that we're using differ from the media that is in the fallopian tube? What's it like in the fallopian tube where an egg and sperm are supposed to meet? Right. The fascinating part is that the environment in the fallopian tube changes continuously. For example, even is more acidic or less acidic if you, if you proceed from the lateral fallopian tube to the proximal fallopian tubes. The oxygen concentration is likely different from the distal fallopian tube to the proximal fallopian tube. So is is a dynamic environment. Number two, the there are multiple compounds like growth factor or cytokines that are really molecules that help to communicate between the embryo and the mother that we don't know anything about. They're not measured. We don't know the levels. We're pretty sure this compound exists in the fallopian tubes, but the same composition is not present in the in vitro condition. The point is that adding this growth factor can have profound effect because these are very powerful molecules that can really change how the embryo develops. So Media composition, changing dramatically media composition is also uh, something to be taken very seriously and very carefully because by adding a growth factor, we can actually potentially create more harm than good. And that's where animal studies uh, might help in optimizing the condition. Another possible change that I've wondered about is, is there any difference in embryos that are enter the uterus naturally through the fallopian tube, where they implant, by comparison to where a uh, embryo implants, which is transferred via the you know the, the cervix, the vagina, the cervix into the uterus, are, are, are has there been any study that would say that the the location of implantation is different, and does it matter? Does it matter where the uh, the embryo implants? Very good question. So um, we've learned that, for example, when we were tra- transferring cleavage stage embryo, like after two or three days of culture, the embryo enters in the uterus at a time where normally it would still be in the fallopian tubes, and these embryos do implant. So number one, embryos have the incredible ability to adapt and to implant, even if they enter in the uterus not at the proper time. Um, so uh, where do they implant? They seem to implant in a normal location. Uh, and um, some of the proponents for transferring an embryo after five days, they really argue that transferring a blastocyst actually will allow the, the embryo to encounter an environment that, that is more, much more similar to the environment encountered by an in vivo embryo during the natural trajectory. Yeah, exactly. It seems to make good sense because you're you're having the embryo enter the uterus 
at the right stage of development. And, and that is true. And what we've learned also, however, is that the embryo do implant, even if you transfer after two days of development, after three days, they seem to implant fine. And so it's interesting that, you know, there is always this ability of the embryo to adapt uh, continuously to the environment. And it's really incredible. I mean, to think that an embryo uh, have such an incredible capability to, to just adapt and grow um, in, in implant, uh, even you know, when conditions are very different from the in vivo environment. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, there is a, um, uh, it's not really a su- super new, but there is a, a procedure out in vivo maturation. It's called, it goes by different things, in vivo mat- maturation. I, I think there's only one um, manufacturer right now, uh, InvoCell. And the idea is it's, it, it allows the maturation to take place via a, a little capsule that is where the embryos are placed inside a media. The medium is still used. And the capsule is placed inside the, the woman's vagina. And uh, uh, it's, it, number one, significant cost savings, uh, as I understand it. Uh, but the other thing is that although it's still in the media, it it at least allows from the light standpoint, the temperature standpoint, the and, and specifically the fluctuation in temperatures, because that's in the reality is that a woman's body, the temperatures change. Of course, it's not the same as, as it would be in the fallopian tube necessarily. But uh, any thoughts on that as far as uh, the less is better type approach? Great question. So InvoCell is uh, basically a device that in which the embryo is placed after fertilization. This device is then placed inside the vagina of the patient, and therefore the temperature is going to be controlled. The embryo uh, is in a capsule where with culture media where it grows for two, three, five days until the embryologist and the physician have decided to do it, then the device is taken out, the embryo is removed, and then transferred back to the uterus. This is a very interesting technology that bypasses the use of uh, uh, the incubator and the need for embryologists to observe the embryo. Uh, it's, it's very valuable for low-resource setting where there are not enough resources to culture embryos. Now, the question, is this technique superior to standard condition or not? Um, I, I do not know. We have evidence that would be remarkably different from what we know works well. I don't think it's superior to the standard condition. Uh, and uh, But however, it is uh, a valuable option because, again, the cost of a culture and number would be way less. And I think is a good addition to the armamentarium that physicians have to treat patients. Yeah, and then there's some, uh, for some patients, there's also some an emotional advantage as well um, because they feel they're more controlled. But yeah, I just wondered if that was because it is less in some ways. Uh, Although the culture conditions are still the same, the amber is still cultured in the culture media, and uh, potentially that, that can play also an effect. Yes. Okay. So another change that is relatively recent, uh, and that is to freeze, what we call them freeze-all cycles. And there's two questions I have about that. One, uh, the freezing of the embryo. Two, the fact that when we freeze all, the woman's body is uh, is in a different state because she has not just gone through the uh, uh, ovulatory stimulation and and her uterus may be more approaching a, a natural. So, 
but on the other hand, you're freezing the embryo. So what are some thoughts on, uh, certainly on the short term, we're seeing that birth rates are the same, if not higher, uh, with freeze-all cycles. But uh, what are your thoughts on that as far as other impacts on the children can see? Yes, so freezing embryo is another great strategy and uh, an opportunity to try to optimize uh, implantation, pregnancy rate, and health for the patient. And I, I think as everything needs to be individualized to the particular need for the patient. Um, the procedure seems to have several advantages, in particular, uh, after an IVF cycle, there might be very high level of estrogen, and that potentially might change the endometrium, meaning the lining of the uterus, and that might have a negative effect on the pregnancy itself. Now, if the estrogen level are not very high, it's unclear if freezing all is needed. Uh, and therefore, uh, the physician will have to discuss with the patient in the particular case if, if freezing is indicated or not. I just would add a factor that uh, freezing embryo uh, is very safe. We have the new vitrification technique that is wonderful. However, overall, we lose around 5% of frozen embryo to freezing. So the freezing technique is not 100% safe. Again, the current loss of frozen embryo is around 5%, and we only freeze embryo of a chance to implant. Uh, so we have to take that into consideration. And second, um, I think that we need to, um, you know, to personalize, uh, to decide to transfer only when um, in, in a selected group of patients. So I don't think a, a blanket approach to say we freeze all to all patients or we never freeze all. I think we, that's where the advantage of these new technologies allow us to say for you with your particular condition is going to be more advantageous to freeze the embryo versus not. But um, everything might have some side effect. Uh, even freezing all, although seems to have a great benefit in pregnancy rate, uh, has been found to be associated with slightly higher birth weight of the children comparing compared to a fresh embryo and also there seem to be um, some some different uh, potential uh, problem like possibly increasing preeclampsia so the literature and the studies are really um, uh, important to, to monitor all these different treatment and variation of treatment that we have let me pause a moment to remind everyone that you're listening to Creating a Family, Talk About Infertility. Today, we're talking about the long-term impacts of uh, on the children conceived through IVF. We're talking with Dr. Paolo Renato. He is a professor of gynecology and obstetrics and a reproductive endocrinologist at the University of California, San Francisco. He is an MD, PhD, and his research is in this area, long-term health of, of children conceived through IVF. Uh, let me also remind you that this show could not and would not happen without the generous support of our partners. And these are clinics and organizations who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. One such partner is Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are one of the largest fertility practices in the state and one of the biggest in the country. They combine the latest innovations in reproductive science with compassionate and customized treatment plans and are able to provide the very best possible care. We also have Shrafts 2.0 Specialty Fertility Pharmacy. They believe that pharmacy care can and should be 
remarkable. All their employees, and they really do mean all of them, from the pharmacist to the shipping coordinator, understand the stress and have been trained in the stress uh, to understand the stress of fertility treatment. And they're trained to treat customers with dignity, empathy, and respect. All right, so we've talked about some of the different changes um, that we've, and we've talked about the uh, freezing and the impact of freezing. What about, and this is brand new, so it's going to be, there's certainly no long term, but there might be some animal studies, egg freezing, Um, uh, children who are conceived from frozen egg, or for that matter, frozen sperm, which we do have uh, extensive uh, uh, history of. So frozen gametes, how might that impact the the early embryos and and implantation and then growth and uh, and long-term and short-term health? Great question. I think all a lot about about these uh, personally because um, overall, again, there are no human studies to suggest that there is any problem with the IVF children. We only have some animal studies, but when I think about egg freezing or potentially embryo freezing simply for future family building, I always think about um, what the consequences could be for the child in the future because egg egg freezing require taking the eggs, freezing the eggs, thawing the eggs, then it will need to be fertilized by ICSI, often will be cultured for possibly five days. Maybe there will be a biopsy that will require refreezing or re-thawing of the embryo. So we're talking about a lot of procedure from the embryos. Mm -hmm. So just because I'm biased in my own research, I always think that doing a lot of procedure to egg an embryo is is something I'm a tiny bit concerned because, again, some mouse studies suggest that the more you do, potentially the more you affect future growth. So I think these are phenomenal opportunities. Egg freezing is marvelous because really offer a great opportunity for women to delay family building until they're ready. And so it's a fantastic opportunity. At the same time, knowing what I know about animal studies, I'm a little bit, um, you know, uh, I don't know how to formalize this, but I, I, I'm a little bit at unease because I'd like to minimize the procedure. So when a patient asks me, shall I do extensive culture? Shall I do biopsy of the embryo? I would say, well, I probably, if absolutely not needed, I would like to avoid it because, the, again, this egg has been already frozen and thawed. And I would prefer, until data really show if it is completely safe or not, that we use a precautionary um, mode and avoid extra procedures. You know, and it, it occurs to me from a patient standpoint and from a professional who is working, a infertility nurse or a reproductive endocrinologist who is working with patients standpoint, the good news here is that, that the practice of IVF is improving, and it's improving based on the research, uh, most of it animal, but some, uh, some on humans as well that is showing a lot of what you're talking about here, and that is that the early, early environment for the embryo matters. Um, things like the as little disturbance as possible for the embryos while they're growing. That's something that 10 or 15 years ago was not standard practice. The air quality in the lab is, is and the, the culture media, all of this is continually improving. And so that, and it's improving with an eye uh, uh, for long-term and short-term, short-term and long-term impacts on the children who are conceived. Um, 
before we before we stop, however, we've talked about the impact of the on the embryos uh, and then fetuses uh, later in the pregnancy from IVF, and that's certainly a substantial, especially from an embryonic standpoint, uh, a substantial environmental issue to consider. But what are some other outside of IVF uh, environmental exposures early in pregnancy that can impact the, and in particular, I don't mean the things that are outside of, uh, you know, obviously getting x-rays and things like that or, or exposure to toxins, but I'm talking more everyday type of exposures should women who are going through either, well, either women who have conceived naturally and, and may or may not be pregnant and they don't know they're just in the first couple of weeks before a pregnancy test is coming back or women who are going through IVF and do know that they are hoping that an embryo is implanting. What things in our environment, uh, in an everyday environment, common environmental exposures, uh, should we be concerned about at that stage for this very fragile embryo? John, thank you for the question. This is absolutely critical. Um, an extension of Dr. Barker's study is really to show that even gamete health, so how healthy are the parents before conception, is very important to create a healthy baby. So before conception, eating well, avoiding drugs, avoiding tobacco uh, are, are factors that are appearing to be very important to create a good embryo. So um, the recommendation of healthy diet, uh, fruit and veggies, uh, uh, avoiding um, exposure to contaminants. I think these are critical factors that anyone, not only patient um, with infertility, but anyone to, to try to create a family need to take. And we need to be very um, aware of the um, exposure, for example, to environmental contaminants, uh, we, we all tr need to try to create in our own home a very healthy and safe environment, independently if we're if we have a problem with infertility or not, because it is clear that um, healthy parents will create an healthy embryo. For example, having being overweight or severely underweight might affect how healthy a uh, sperm or an egg is, and that might create a less viable embryo. So um, I think being in optimal condition before conception, I think, is a critical factor that comes out of all of these studies. And, and when you speak of environmental contaminants, can you list uh, a couple that uh, people should be aware of in their environment? Well, um, I think one of the issues that all the environmental contaminants are so ubiquitous and we're exposed daily to, to um, a very different series of uh, conditions. I think what is under our control, I really think, is the diet. I think eating organic food, uh, locally grown, um, being mindful of the food we eat is probably the major factor we can introduce. The second is definitely avoid toxin. So tobacco is a big one, drugs. Marijuana or any drugs that is available today should be used, not be used. Uh, I, I feel, and um, in the rest, uh, it you know I do think there's need for uh, environmental agency to help us to to protect the consumer from um, the, the very diverse series of uh, components that are present, but we have very little control. For example, the packaging of food, we cannot really control very much what uh, 
the way our food is packaged, but we can control what we can do at home. So I think the very healthy measures uh, of healthy living that you know your doctor would probably communicate to you uh, are, are still very valid, but very important also for conception and preconception. And the important too is it's so fascinating that that it's truly preconception as well. So it's the health of the gamete as well as the the uterine environment and and all of that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Paul Lopinato, for talking with us today about the long-term impact of children conceived through uh, IVF. The views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You would need to talk with your infertility professional. Thank you so much for being with us today, and I will see you next week.